0: Well, I'm excited to get into Matthew chapter number 11 today, and because this was a special Sunday, I had considered um, going to a different passage of Scripture, but boy, I'm just so thankful for the sufficiency of Scripture, and as we've been studying verse by verse through the Bible, I've truly believed that this next, next chapter, next verse is exactly what we need to hear today. So at this point in Matthew's gospel account, Matthew has given undeniable evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. He's the one that God promised would come and bring us salvation. And the first 10 chapters of of Matthew stand as a testament to the divine uh, 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 appearance of Jesus Christ, to the fact that He is the Messiah. 10 is the number of testament. There are 10 commandments. For example... So Matthew takes the first 10 chapters of his gospel account. And it's interesting that in this we see a great testament to the power and the evidence to the fa- of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now the next two chapters we'll study. Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12 are going to reveal to us how various different types of people responded to the truth that Jesus Christ is is the Messiah. And the first response that we will see given by an individual today is a response of doubt. Doubt. Now I think it's very surprising actually who this doubt comes from. John the Baptist. How many of you remember him? John the Baptist, in verse 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest man born among women. Now that's not just kind words. That's Jesus saying that. And he can't lie. He said that John the Baptist was the greatest guy who's ever walked on this earth besides Jesus Christ himself. John was the cousin of Jesus. He was the great herald of the Messiah. The greatest prophet that ever lived. And so many other things we could say about the ministry and the person of John the Baptist. And yet even... The greatest man who ever lived struggled with doubt in his faith. So I'll ask you a question. Have you ever struggled with doubt? Have you ever wondered, is all this real? Have you ever wondered, am I really saved? Well, if you have, you're in good company. Because I'll tell you this, the vast majority of people in this world. And I believe that every Christian at some point comes to a juncture where they struggle with doubt. I remember when I was a boy, I had made a profession of faith when I was very young that I didn't understand. And uh, I remember knowing about the gospel and hearing preachers preach about the day the rapture was going to take place and and all of us were going to be gone, all the true Christians were going to be gone out of this world and boy I knew this truth in my heart and one day we went to the grocery store we were walking through the grocery store and I decided like a little boy tends to do that I was going to cut through the clothing aisle and meet the rest of my family on the other side well I cut through the clothing aisle when I got to the other side they were gone you know what immediately went to my head? The rapture happened, and I missed it. Well, I was freaking out. I actually went, and I hid in the middle of one of those clothing racks, and I was just sitting there, and that's where my mom found me. My poor mother, okay? But anyways, I remember struggling with doubt, and through much of my younger years, I had a battle with uh, doubting my own personal faith. Doubt is a very common and difficult struggle that all people face. And I'll say this, doubt was one of the first tools that Satan used to try to get, lead people away from God. To try to lead people away from Jesus. And most believers experience some measure of doubt somewhere along their spiritual journey. As long as you have faith, it's important you understand this. As long as you have faith, you will always have the possibility of doubt. I'll say that again. As long as you have faith, you will always have the possibility of doubt. See, because faith requires you to believe in something that you cannot see. And so that's why I say, so long as you have faith, you will always have some measure of doubt. Now, if I... Were to tell you this morning that I have in my hand a $20 bill. How many of you believe me? Not one of you? You say, We know you're a preacher. There's no way you've got 20 bucks in your hand. Well, I were to tell you I had a $20 bill in my hand. I'll pick I'll, I'll on my wife because she'll believe me. All right, stand up, Emily. $20 bill in my hand. Do you believe I have a $20 bill in my hand? Sure. Sure. <laughs> we got, we got 250 people in here. Finally get one person to believe me. What does that say? Nobody believes the preacher, huh? Um, $20 bill, all right? Now, this is just an illustration, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> $20 bill in my hand. You say you believe me. Now, I'm going to destroy your faith. Okay? Okay. I don't have a $20 bill in my hand. It's a guitar pick. You all were right, okay? Now, here's the point. I can say something, but if you can't see it, you can say you believe it, you can say you don't believe it, but you don't really know until you see it. All right? But when you see it, you can no longer have faith because you know that it's real. You can see it with your own eyes. In order to have faith, It requires you not to be able to see tangibly the thing that you're placing your faith in. And so that's why I say so long as you have faith, you will always have the tendency and ability to experience some measure of doubt. But here's what I want you to understand. As long as uh, 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 doubt is something that God often uses to increase your faith... God allows us to experience doubt because He wants to use our seasons of doubt to teach us to trust in Him more. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 7 talks about how the trial of our faith, God uses it as a refining fire to grow our faith to more depths. And oftentimes it's in the uh, trials of life when you're not sure if God will come through for you. When you experience those seasons of doubt that God allows you to grow in your faith in ways that you never could have any other way. And I'll say this to you. Jesus loves doubters. So how do you know that? John the Baptist. Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? And go on down the line and talk about many people throughout the scripture that doubted. Doubted. And the Lord ministered to all of them. Jesus loves doubters, but he wants to help people who are struggling with doubt to overcome their doubt and to become stronger believers because of it. And so in this passage of scripture, Jesus has three words of counsel he wants to give to doubters. And the first piece of counsel you can note down here is he wants to give a word of assurance. A word of assurance. Now looking down to our text in Matthew 11 verse 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding the twelve disciples, He departed thence to teach... And to preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now, let's get caught up on our context here. Jesus had just finished training and sending his 12 disciples, who were now being commissioned as apostles, sent ones to go forth and do the work of his ministry all over that region of the world. And after he sent them forth, the Bible says that Jesus proceeded to go alone and go about his ministry on his own. He was teaching and preaching all throughout the cities in uh, in Galilee, in the region of Galilee. And as Jesus is traveling and preaching and teaching, meanwhile, John the Baptist, the Bible says, found himself in prison. Why? Why? We don't see it here in this text, but later on in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, he tells us why John was put in prison. He said, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. He's a pretty bold preacher. He went up to the ruling uh, governor of that time, the one who was over that whole region, and he stuck his preacher's finger in his face and said, you ain't doing it right, son. And he was put in prison for that. He was put in prison by this Roman ruler, Herod, Because he called out Herod for a sin in his life. Now history records for us that the place where Herod put him in prison was a place uh, just to the the southeast of uh, the the Dead Sea. A place called Machairus. I believe we have a picture of one of the the, the cells, they believe, uh, from Machairus. If you can picture this desolately dark place that John found himself in. And from that place he could not see what Jesus was doing. He could only hear about what Jesus was doing from other people. And he's alone in this place. And he's wondering why God had allowed him to be in this place. And in this dark dungeon, we find he was confused and alone. And he began to struggle with doubt. No doubt he wondered, why isn't Jesus taking over the world? I thought that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. To set up his physical kingdom on this earth. No longer, uh, no, uh, uh, no doubt he was wondering, why isn't Jesus delivering me out of this circumstance? If he has all this power, why isn't he helping me get out of prison? Why isn't he helping me be delivered from the difficulty that I'm going through? I want you to listen to me on this point. Difficulty and disappointments of life often lead to doubt when you're going through hardship when you're going through circumstances that you cannot explain when you're going through something that makes you start to have second thoughts i didn't know i didn't think this is what christianity was all about if jesus loves me why am i having such a hard time hey i put my faith in jesus if if he really cared about me why is he letting my loved one Go through this health trial. If He really cared for me, why isn't He providing my need? And see, we all go through these kinds of doubts. When we get into difficult and disappointing circumstances, they produce these questions of doubt in our minds. And I say to you something that a man once told me that's always stuck with me. He said, don't doubt in the night what God has given you in the light. And it's very easy to doubt God in the midst of the night. But if God said He loves you, if God said He'll take care of you, you can trust the Word of God. But John, in the midst of this difficult circumstance, he began to struggle with doubt. And so the Bible says that John's doubts moved him to send two of his students, two of his personal followers, to go ask Jesus a question. I want you to see what that question was in verse number 3. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 3, the Bible says that these two came to Jesus and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, when they mentioned the word, the phrase, he that should come, that, that is a Greek phrase that comes from a, a, a Hebrew phrase that literally speaks of the expected one. He that should come. And it was a reference that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with as a reference to their Messiah. In fact, when these people came up and asked Jesus this question, no doubt every Jew that was there knew that when they asked if he was he that should come, they were asking if Jesus really was the Messiah. That was the question that they had for Jesus at this point. And then they went on from that and they asked a further question. They said, are you he that should come, or do we look for another? That word another is the Greek word heteros. And it speaks of another of a different kind. In other words, what they were asking was, are you really the Messiah? Because you don't, you're not doing anything like we thought the Messiah was going to do. Listen, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that any of the Jewish people had expected would come. They expected that their Messiah was going to come and he was going to establish a physical kingdom on this earth. They expected their Messiah would come and free them from bondage from Rome. They expected that their Messiah would come and usher in an age of world peace all across this world where he reigned at the center of it. But that is not what Jesus did. And so the Jews looked at Jesus' ministry and said, yeah, he's a great guy, but he's not doing the things we thought the Messiah should do. Jesus made clear during his ministry that he had not come to establish a physical kingdom. He had come to establish a spiritual kingdom. He told told some Jews that questioned him one time, the the, the kingdom of God is within you." you. See, Jesus came first to establish his kingdom in our hearts through our faith in him. But the people that lived in that time, including John, they didn't understand that. They were confused about this very thing. And I'll say still today, many doubt that Jesus is the one God sent because they simply don't really understand the reason why he came. In John chapter 3 and verse number 17, the Bible tells us that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? saved. It had not come to destroy men's lives but to save men's lives and that was the fundamental misunderstanding they had in that day and it's still the fundamental misunderstanding that people have today you see Jesus did not come merely to give us temporal salvation to deliver us out of our present circumstances but Jesus came to give us eternal salvation Jesus came to deal not merely with the symptoms of sin in our life but he came to deal with the very source of sin and to take it out of the way through His sacrifice on the cross. And see, there was a lot more depth to the reason why Jesus came. When we lose sight of that, in the midst of the difficulties that we go through in life, it's very easy to allow doubt in our Lord to creep in. So John was experiencing this doubt. And in the midst of his doubts, Jesus gave a simple word of assurance. I want you to see this in verse number 4. The Bible says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus began to speak words of assurance to John in the midst of his season of doubt. First off, we see that Jesus gave John the assurance of his work. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus begins to say, look at my ministry. Look at the things that I'm doing. The blind are receiving their sight. The dead are being raised to life. The lame are walking again. And all the things that Jesus was doing in his ministry was a fulfillment of all that the prophets had foretold the Messiah would do. I don't have time to go there this morning, but there are so many references in the Old Testament about the Messiah and how when He came, He would bring healing and He would would do all the types of works that Jesus Christ did. And so the point is, Jesus was doing the work that only the Messiah could do. And I find it interesting, you don't see it in this account, but in a parallel account, in Luke's account of this same story. In Luke chapter 7, When these disciples came and asked Jesus, are you really the one? The Bible says in Luke chapter 7 and verse number 21 that in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities. Here's essentially what happened. They questioned, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus didn't say a word at first. He just showed them his works. Began to heal people. Began to restore people to life. He began to do all of these things, and then he turned to them almost as a demonstration, yes, I am the Messiah. And so the first way that he reassured them was through the works that he did. I think it's interesting, a couple, or about a little over a month ago, our build team was meeting together about some of the very things I talked to you about today. We were talking about the financial situation that we're in. And to be honest with you, it wasn't a great, really great encouraging meeting. Uh, we, didn't have a lot, we had a lot, a lot more questions than we had answers. And in the midst of talking about all of these things, Ms. Heather walks in. And uh, we're sitting there talking about how we're going to uh, move forward with this process and how we're going to pay all these bills and all these kinds of things. And Ms. Heather walks in and she gives a report. Someone had just called in that moment. And uh, they had donated the use of their crane for us to be able to put the metal up on the building, which was no meager expense. It was, it, was, it was a little thing, but in that moment, it was a big thing for us. It was almost like God knew we needed some encouragement in that moment. And in that moment, God said, listen, I'm going to take care of you. Has that ever happened to you before? You're perplexed. You wonder how it's going to work out. And God just does something to reassure you. That's what happened for these disciples. That's what Jesus was doing for John here in this circumstance as well. Boy, when you see God at work in your life, it chases away all of your doubts. I love what Jesus said in verse number four. Look back at verse number four. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go, and look at this, show John again. Now I have that circled in my Bible. Show John again. Again, you know what? John need to be reminded again. Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus will do what He said He'll do. And you and I need to be reminded again and again and again and again that God is faithful and God is able, and that God will come through every single time. I like the old Southern gospel song it says over and over. Again and again, God is faithful. Over and over, again and again. Through it all, He's made me able to stand and survive, to come through alive when it sure looked like I couldn't win. Jesus is with me, so I claim the victory over and over again. And boy, Jesus reassured John with His works. The second, thing I, second way Jesus assured John is He gave John the assurance of His Word. The assurance of His word. Look at verse number 6 again. The Bible says in verse 6, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now listen. to, To many of the people that day, the fact that Jesus was being presented as the Messiah was a stumbling block for them. They couldn't believe that the true Messiah would be somebody like Jesus. Somebody born in, uh, born in, uh, or somebody who was raised in Nazareth. Somebody who was so lowly, he had no kingly regalia about him. He had no uh, power or prestige uh, uh, like the world would expect the Messiah to have. Jesus didn't have any of that, and they looked at Jesus. And when they was proposed as the Messiah, it was the truth that they stumbled at, and so Jesus gave this beautiful beatitude here. Blessed, he said, or happy is the man who finds no reason to stumble because of me. That's essentially what he was saying. Happy is the person who finds no reason to stumble because of me. And Jesus sent this message back to John. You know what John had to do? John had to accept by faith. Though he couldn't see the $20 bill, okay? He had to accept by faith that Jesus said it was there. And it was there. He had to accept by faith. He couldn't see it. He couldn't touch it. He couldn't know it with any tangible certainty. But Jesus said, I am who I said I am. I am the Messiah. And even though the circumstances didn't read that way for John, and even though John found himself in prison, John had to make the decision, I'm going to trust what Jesus says instead of what I feel. And that's exactly what he did. Because Jesus gave him this word of reassurance. And so we see instead of doubting, John chose to depend on the word of Jesus. And I say to you, much of what Jesus asks us to do, much of what Jesus asks us to trust Him with, is difficult. It's not not always easy to trust Jesus with the things that He allows us to go through in life. But I'll say this. The key to living a blessed life, listen, the key to living a happy life is living life independence on Jesus. That's the key. The Bible says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand And uh, the Bible tells us to be careful or worried about nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How can you have joy? How can you have peace? How can you have these things through the difficult circumstances of life when the doubts want to creep in? The way you can have them is to simply live trusting in the Lord. And that's what Jesus challenged John with. And that's what Jesus is still challenging you and I with today. And so if you are struggling with doubt, the first word of counsel Jesus gives you is a word of assurance. You can be assured by His work in your life. He's taken care of you in the past. He'll still take care of you today. And He'll be there in the future. And He gives you the assurance of His word. And even if you can't see it, you can trust God's word and believe it. The assurance. Uh, He gives us a word of assurance. The second truth I want you to see is that there is a word of assessment. A word of assessment. Now the multitudes surrounding Jesus had looked on the ministry of John the Baptist with deep respect. And yet when they heard John's students questioning whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah, it made them wonder about John. And uh, so in the next uh, several verses here, we find that Jesus really began to defend John against those who were going to look down on John because of the lapse of his faith here. And I want you to see what Jesus said starting in verse number 7. The Bible says, And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." In the words Jesus just spoke about John, he really makes an assessment about the life and ministry of John the Baptist. We don't have time to park here very long, but I will say this. The assessment Jesus makes of John exposes for us the qualities that Jesus considers to define a truly great person. These are qualities all of us, I believe, can aspire to. And the first of them I want you to note down is that he was unshakable. Unshakeable. Verse 7, he, he asked them, what did you go out to see when you went out to see John? Did you go out to see a reed shaken with the wind? No, that didn't define John. You see, John was a man who stood up for what he believed in. He was not a man who was influenced by the, the winds of culture. He was not swayed in the wind like a reed would along the side of a lake. He was not a wishy-washy minister. Not a, not a double-minded man. And that was something that people admired him for. Even though he got imprisoned for his resoluteness. John, if it needed to be said, he was willing to say to anybody what God told him to say. Even to the highest authority in the land. And uh, he was someone who was unshakable. And I'll tell you this. God defines a truly great person by his resoluteness. By his resiliency. By his willing to take a stand even if nobody else will take a stand. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 58. Therefore my beloved brethren be ye steadfast Unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I'll tell you something, we need some more men and women who will have this kind of determination and character like John. One person put it this way, he said the men who have changed the world have been men the world could not change. God help us to have that kind of character. He wasn't a reed shaken with the wind. The second character quality Jesus says of John is that he was unselfish. Verse number 8. He mentions here, did you go out to see a guy who was clothed in soft clothing? I think it's an interesting reference here, but what's being indicated here is that John was not a man who was consumed with possessions or power. Now soft clothing in that day and time was the things that princes would wear, that people with royal power would would wear, and and many associated that kind of clothing with someone who was effeminate. Uh, You say, what do you mean by that? A wussy, okay? <laughs> didn't, he, didn't, he didn't have the, the, uh, the, the, the grit that was needed to be considered a real man. And, and the truth of the matter is, when he, Jesus asked this question, everybody would have known. No, that wasn't John. I mean, if you read about John, he wore animal skins. I mean, he was as rugged as they come. He, he ate bugs for dinner, okay? Um, and uh, that, that might be more manly than me right there, alright? But locust and honey, that was his food. And uh, he was a man's man. He was not a man who was concerned about having power, privilege, or pleasure. He was concerned about one thing, and that was living for Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 3 and verse 30, John had said about Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. And God defines true greatness, not in terms of notoriety, but in terms of humility. In terms of you being willing to surrender your life to the Lord. Matthew 23 and verse 11 says, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. He was unshakable. He was unselfish. But a third character quality I see is that he was unequaled. unequaled. Jesus in verses 9 through 11, in talking about John, begins to reveal the fact that John was no mere prophet he was indeed a prophet, but he was the greatest of the prophets. Why? Well, a couple of reasons why. First and foremost, John was considered the greatest of the prophets because he was the one that God had chosen to be the herald for the King of Kings. To be the divine messenger to introduce the very ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the truth is John was both a prophet and he was the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament prophecies as well. And he was called by God to, be, uh, 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 to prepare the nation of Israel for Jesus and then to present Jesus to the nation of Israel. But I'll summarize it by saying this. John was great because he became who God had called him to be. That's really why Jesus is saying John was such a great man. And I'll say this to you. God estimates the value of a man's greatness in terms of his surrender to him. You want to live a life that's truly great? Understand this. You were uniquely created by God. And you have a unique purpose that nobody else in this world will ever be able to fulfill. And the way to live a life that is truly great, whether you are seen as great in the eyes of other men or not, the way to live a life that is truly great is for you to live to fulfill the purpose that God created you for. In the eyes of God, that's a life that is truly valuable. And I find it interesting at the end of verse 11... As great as Jesus says John was on earth, Jesus made clear that even the least esteemed person in his kingdom will be considered far greater than John ever was. Look at the end of verse 11. Jesus said, But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is, read the rest with me, greater than he. Listen, according to God's assessment, if you live out God's purpose for your life, You're great in the eyes of God. For some of you, the doubt you might be struggling with is, does my life matter? (laughs) Does does what what I am doing, does it matter? And if it's what God created you to do, regardless of whether anybody else notices it, regardless of whether you get any recognition for it, on this side of eternity, if you do what God created you to do, your life has not been in vain, and it is great in the sight of God. God calls us to be faithful. And so we see a word of assessment. We saw, first of all, a word of assurance. And I'll just mention this final thing here. Finally, I want you to see there is a word of acceptance. A word of acceptance. Let's read the rest of the text and we'll be done. The Bible says in verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Summarization here. Because we're out of time. Jesus, in talking about John's ministry, He's defending John. But now He turns and He uses John, John's example to give an invitation to the people who were gathered there. And in talking about John's ministry, He says that from the time John began to preach, the time is probably about a year to 18 months, that's, just, that, that's, that's the, only, the only amount of time that John's ministry lasted. And for 18 months, from that time up until the point Jesus was standing there talking, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven was suffering violence. That's a very confusing phrase. And a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of debate about what that's talking about there. But let me, let me, let me summarize it. The, the, the phrase, the kingdom suffers violence. It, it comes from a Greek word that literally means to press into. And it has the picture of someone trying to enter into a city forcibly, uh, as warfare would take place in that way during that time period. And the point of the matter was, what Jesus was saying is, from the moment John began to preach, the message of the gospel had had power to begin to force itself into the lives of everyone who was hearing it. It was, it was suffering violence and the violent take it by force. That is, uh, when it talks about the violent ones taking it by force, it was talking about those people who are determined to come in to the kingdom. And then Jesus made a statement in verse number uh, 13. He said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What in the world is that talking about? Well, Here's, here's, here's the summary. John was the final prophet in the dispensation of the law and the prophets. When the law had been introduced all the way back at Moses, throughout all of human history up to that point, everything that had been done, every practice in the temple, every prophet's message that had been declared, had been pointing forward to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And John was the climax. John was the last prophet. John was the one to take all of that information from the law and prophets. All of that failure of mankind to be able to keep God's law and then to say it wasn't good enough, but here's Jesus. He's come to save you. And that was the whole purpose of John's ministry. And so Jesus goes on in verse number 14 and He makes a statement. Don't miss this. He says, and if you will Receive it. This is Elias which was to come. We don't have time to go there. But the last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi gave a prophecy that somebody was going to come before the Lord came and prepare the way for the Lord to come. Jesus said, John, at least partially, was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And John began to present To the world, Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And as Jesus speaks of these things, he uses that phrase in verse 14. Look at it again, verse 14. He says, and if you will receive it. You see, there are a lot of people who have doubts about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been revealed to the world. The question He gives to every man in this world is if you will receive it. This was a truth that each person must personally determine to accept. Listen, nobody can make you get saved. Nobody can make you believe in Jesus. The Spirit of God draws men to salvation, but ultimately the choice is left up to you. If you will receive it, here is Jesus. He's been presented to the world. He's died on the cross. He's been buried. He's been raised from the dead. He offers salvation to anyone who is willing to believe in Him and receive Him as their Savior. I can't save you. I can tell you about who Jesus is. but At the end of the day, As the Holy Spirit convicts your heart and makes you realize you are not saved and you need Christ, you have a choice to make if you will receive it. And the last verse, verse 15, says Jesus made this statement. He said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a familiar statement if you've read your Bible very much. Fifteen times in the Bible this statement is made. And every single time, Jesus makes it. Seven times during his earthly ministry and eight times from heaven, Jesus says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's essentially saying in that verse is that if you find yourself in such a condition right now where you are willing to listen to this truth, then you need to do it today. As the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, you're not just hearing here, but you're hearing here. You're hearing in your heart. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need Christ. If you have ears to hear today, if you are in a condition where you can hear the truth of the gospel and realize you're a sinner and that you need Christ as your Savior, then, then, then respond to it. He that has ears to hear, let Him hear. The truth of the matter is you may have doubts about your faith today, Because you aren't really saved. Maybe your mom told you, yeah, you were baptized when you were a baby. Maybe someone else uh, led you through a prayer that you didn't understand and you've been struggling with doubts for years. And you don't really know that you're saved. If you will receive the truth of the gospel today. If you have ears to hear today and the Holy Spirit of God is convicting your heart. Today, you can be saved. As Hebrews chapter 3 verse says, in verse 7, the Holy Ghost says today if you will hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Listen, don't grab the back of that pew again and say, I'm not going to do it today. I'll do it another day. I'll do it another day. You're not guaranteed another day. God's given you today. If you've been struggling with doubts, your doubts can be eliminated today. If you'll just come trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I believe that's a message that very clearly many of you in this room need to hear. I've told you, as long as you have faith, you'll always have the possibility of doubt. And if the greatest man who ever lived struggled with doubt, you will struggle with doubt sometimes too. So let me say a word to you, Christians, first before we go into the invitation. What are you doubting? Are you doubting your salvation? Are you doubting that God's going to provide for your needs? Hey, when it comes to this building process, are you doubting that God's going to come through for us? What are you doubting? Are you doubting that God can mend your marriage? Are you doubting that wayward child is ever going to come home? What are you doubting? Because whatever your doubt is, that doubt does not become sinful until you refuse to turn your doubts back to dependence on the Lord. Right now, if you're experiencing doubts, you can come lay them at the altar. says, Lord, I don't know how, but I'm going to trust you. I can't see the $20 bill, but if you say it's there, I'm going to believe it's there. Because you're the one that said it. That's faith. And that's what I want to encourage you to do as believers. Now, some of you are doubting because you, you know in your heart of hearts you really aren't saved. Here's my invitation to you. If you don't know that you're saved, if you will receive it, come today and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior.